hopefully you're not too young to remember Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Uh, the show was created by Fred Rogers in the late 60s, ran until 2003, and it was created, he created it to help children deal with their feelings. In bringing thousands of children together every afternoon to discuss their feelings, he created an emotional gathering place, a television neighborhood. More than anything, Mr. Rogers wanted people to not be afraid to reach out to one another as friends and um, friends and neighbors, not strangers and enemies. Only then can we really help each other, he thought. Now, this idea of neighborliness was the underlying theme of the show. I mean, it was, uh, you saw it in the show's title, uh, the show's guests who would show up at the front door, uh, the neighborhood set. Uh, you even heard it in the show's theme song in, in which Mr. Rogers, the consummate neighbor, practically begs, practically begs his viewers to be his neighbor. Won't you please? Won't you please? Please, won't you be my neighbor. It's a beautiful sentiment that we should be neighbors to each other. I mean, who's going to disagree? Uh, but do we have what it takes to be good neighbors? Are we really, really interested in being good neighbors? And what does it even mean to be a good neighbor, especially now when you're not even allowed to shake your neighbor's hand? How do you be a good neighbor today? These are good questions that Mr. Rogers addresses. They are also questions raised by another strong advocate of neighborliness. You might not know this, but one of the reasons that Mr. Rogers was such a strong advocate of, of children and being good neighbors is because he was a Christian. He was actually a Presbyterian minister. And perhaps the only person who was a stronger advocate for loving each other as neighbors, the only person more so than Mr. Rogers was Jesus Christ. And we see this in the story from the Bible that I want to study with you this morning. We are in week 11 of our current series here at Rooftop. It's called True Story, uh, Life-Changing Lessons from the Parables of Jesus. Uh, here at Rooftop, we believe that Jesus was the uh, Son of God who came to earth to die for our sins and rose again from the dead. But we also believe he came to earth as a teacher to teach us about life and faith. And in order to teach us about life and faith, he told stories. We call these stories parables. And this morning, we get to look at maybe... One of Jesus' like, most famous parable ever. Uh, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Or, as you might call it, it's the parable of the Good Neighbor. So let me go ahead and read it to you, after which we will discuss it. It's from Luke, chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? The man answered, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbors yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and... Just who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, they went away, they left him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, Levite's another type of priest, and when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled 
came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey. He brought him to an inn. He took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you might have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, hmm, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. That's the story of the Good Samaritan. You've probably heard it. <clears throat> You've probably uh, maybe even seen it before, uh, acted out on a flannel graph <laughs> on Sunday school, when you were in Sunday school as a kid. The story is of a man traveling on a dusty rural road. He is accosted by robbers. They rob him. They beat him. They leave him for dead. Two religious figures, a priest and a Levite, walk by. They ignore him. But then a kind-hearted Samaritan finds him, bandages his wounds, takes him to an inn, pays for him to stay there for a couple weeks to recover, and then promises to cover anything else. Uh, Jesus then tells us to go and do likewise and love each other, love others like the good Samaritan did. Now, like I said, you probably know the story, but here's the thing. You probably only know half the story. One of the things that we've been talking about in our study on the parables is the importance of reading the parables in context. Context is what's going on around the parable. And there's actually a lot going on around the parable here, the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's a lot of context here. There's literary context, there's cultural context, and you can't really understand or appreciate the parable of the Good Samaritan without understanding the context. Here's an example. Jesus only tells this story after he has asked a question by an expert in the law. An expert in the law is a religious lawyer, basically. The lawyer asks him, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus asks him, Well, what is written in the law? The lawyer says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Now, the lawyer here has apparently been following Jesus because Jesus has said this before. Jesus has told entire crowds. He has said, hey, everybody, there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament. The, the Jewish Old Testament, tons of laws, 500, 600 laws. And I know, I, 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 in fact, I, I wrote it myself. I, I know that there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament. But here's, there's really only two that you've got to pay attention to. It's love the Lord your God with every part of who you are. Love the Lord your God with your, your strength, with your, your body, with your, with your mind, with your soul. And secondly, Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the only two that you've got to pay attention to. You do those, and, and you're going to be good. And, and the guy actually apparently knows that Jesus has said this, and so that's he, how he responds. He says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus affirms him when he says this. He says, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But then things get interesting. Luke, who was telling the story, records that the man wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and just who is my neighbor? Remember, he's a lawyer. He's trying to parse definitions. Who exactly is my neighbor? Now, you might think that's an odd question, but it's not. There was actually a lot of debate on that question in the first century. Even though the Old Testament law told them to love their neighbors, they debated who that included and who it didn't include. Because as much as the Jews in Jesus' day wanted to love their neighbors, they also had a lot of enemies. And they couldn't imagine loving their enemies. Some of their enemies were, in fact, rather brutal, like murderous enemies 
like the Romans, their Roman overlords, who had oppressed them for centuries. And the Jews could not imagine loving their Romans as their neighbors. It was actually commonly understood that Jews were to love their neighbors, but felt permission to hate their enemies. Jesus is even aware of this. In the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon that Jesus delivers in the Gospels, he says this, you have heard that it was, he says this, you have heard that it was said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. People actually thought that. They actually thought, well, there's two types of people in our lives. There's neighbors and there's enemies. It's okay to hate your enemy and you have to love your neighbor. The question was, well, who is this person? Is this person a neighbor or an enemy? There was a lot of debate on how do you know who somebody is, a neighbor or an enemy? And that's why the guy is asking, who do you mean by neighbor? Who do I have to love? Now, what he's really asking, here's what he's really asking. What he's really asking is, what's the smallest number of people that I have to love in order to still be an obedient Jew? That's what he's really asking. In order to me to still be regarded as an obedient Jew in God's eyes, what's the smallest number of people I have to love? Who is my neighbor? Who do I, who do I not have to love? Now, before we roll our eyes at the selfishness of this question, you should know that people are always doing this. People are always trying to justify not having to love other people as their neighbors. That's what the lawyer was trying to do. That's what Luke says he was trying to do. But the man wanted to justify himself. That's what he says. He wanted to justify himself. To justify yourself means to come up with bad reasons to behave badly. And people do this. They come up with reasons not to have to love certain types of people. Oftentimes, we do this by dehumanizing other people. By regarding them as less than fully human, we justify not having to care for them. One of the ways the Nazis justified killing Jews in concentration camps, for example, was by calling them subhuman. That way, they could kill and torture and experiment on them. That was their justification. Or the founding fathers of America, many of whom were slaveholders, justified the enslavement of black people by believing they weren't completely human. No, they were just three-fifths human. That justified keeping them as slaves. Or... We justify killing children in the womb through abortion by thinking, well, they're not really human beings. Makes it easier to kill them. We do this. We look for reasons to justify not having to love others as our neighbors. I I do this every day. Maybe not by dehumanizing people, but I still do it. I mean, I know I could do a better job reaching out to my neighbors on my street. I mean, I barely know some of the people on my street. I know I could reach out to them, but I think, well, you know, we're all busy. They don't want to really get to know me. No, we'll just, it's not worth trying. Or I know that uh, there are people who are in conflict with me. I'm a pastor. There's always people who are in conflict with the pastor. I should try to be reconciled to them, but I, you know, I tell myself, well, you know, if they have something to say, it's kind of up to them to say it. I justify not loving them. See what I'm doing. I'm looking for reasons to not have to love other people as my neighbors. Like the lawyer, I want to know the fewest number of people I really have to love and can still call myself a Christian. 
Jesus knows that this is what the lawyer is really asking. So in order to expose the question, he tells him a story. A story about a good Samaritan. And one of the reasons the story of the Good Samaritan is one of my favorites is because in the story, we see Jesus' creative genius and his ability to confront our sin and hypocrisy in a, in a sudden sort of way, in a subtle, sudden sort of way. You see, Jesus is very intentional about who he casts in this story. This is a really easy question, but who is the hero of the story? It's really obvious. Don't overthink this. Who is the hero of the story of the Good Samaritan? It's the Good Samaritan. Now, we call the Samaritan a Good Samaritan because he ends up doing good. He ends up doing a lot of good. He's a good example. But there's terrific irony in the fact that we label the Good Samaritan Good Samaritan because no first century Jew would have ever labeled any sort of Samaritan good. You might not know this, but Jews and Samaritans generally despised each other in the first century. Samaritans were a neighboring people group to the north of Judea. Uh, Samaritans were generally despised as Jewish half-bloods. They were actually former Jews who had interbred with invading nations instead of keeping themselves pure for God. Jews thought they didn't worship the true Hebrew God anymore. They were worse than pagans. They were religious traitors. Many first century Jews couldn't even say the word Samaritan without a sneer. At the end of the story, for example, Jesus asks the lawyer, uh, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? That's what he asks. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replies, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even say the word Samaritan. He can't even say the Samaritan. No, well, you know, the one who had mercy. He can't even say it. So you can see what Jesus is doing here. He is exposing the man's lack of neighborliness for the people who live right next to him. He is casting one of his enemies in the hero role of the story to expose the man's racism. To hear how the man would have heard this story, we can modernize it a bit to the same effect. In fact, let's just go ahead and do that. Let's recast the story a bit so that it might maybe hit us in the same way. It might go something like this, if Jesus were to tell it to us today. It might go like this. Pastor Matt of Rooftop Church approached Jesus with a question. Lord, who is my neighbor? Basically, what's the smallest number of people I can love and still call myself Christian? Jesus rolled his eyes and then told Pastor Matt a story. He said, a group of rooftop men was going to a men's conference. Along the way, the van broke down Being men, they pretended they could fix it before admitting they couldn't. They waited for help as they were on a lonely stretch of highway between towns with no cell service. Another van from a church going to the same conference drove by, and the rooftop men tried to wave them down. But they were late for the conference, so they just kept driving. Then Pastor Matt drove by, who was supposed to speak at the conference, but had to arrive separately He was also late and drove on the other side of the road, shielding his face in the hopes that these rooftop men would not notice him or his very distinguishable beat-up black scion. But then, a group of transgender atheists 
heading to their own separate conference, drove by in their rainbow-colored van with a school of Darwin fish on their bumper. Seeing the rooftoppers, they pulled over to the side of the road, they crammed the rooftoppers into their van and drove them to McDonald's for breakfast, buying them each a McGriddle. They paid for a tow to get the van, they paid for a hotel for everyone to get some rest while their van was fixed, also on their dime. Then the transgender atheists went on their heathen way to their atheist conference. That's the story. That's the story Jesus tells. That's how they would have heard it. And that's how Jesus answers this question. Who's my neighbor? Basically, Jesus' point is that if this is how capable your enemy is of loving people, shouldn't you, a son of God, love them even more? If a transgender atheist is capable of this, and for the record, they are, shouldn't we be? His point is, we should love everyone. Our neighbor includes everyone, even our enemies. The Samaritan is the lawyer's neighbor. Let me put it simply. Jesus' simple point here is that to love your neighbor is to love the person you love the least. To love your neighbor is to love the person you love the least. The Samaritan was the person the lawyer loved the least. He was trying to get out of having to love his enemy, the Samaritans. He wanted to be considered righteous while loving the fewest number of people he could. Jesus does not play that game. As he says in the Sermon on the Mount, as he goes on to say in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy. Pray for those that persecute you. So here's a simple question for you. Who's the person you love the least? Whose face just came to your mind? Who's the person you love the least? That's your enemy. You might not call him your enemy, but the person you love the least is your enemy. Who is it? Is it a family member you can't stand? Is it a coworker making your life miserable? Is he your ex? Is it President Trump? Is it Elizabeth Warren? Is it Pete Is it illegal immigrants who break into our country? Is it poor beggars who come up to you on the street asking for money you're sure they're going to use for alcohol? Who is the person you love the least? That's your enemy. And that person is also your neighbor. To love your neighbor is to love that person. We cannot, we cannot be followers of Jesus without loving that person. The neighborly love of God puts no boundaries on the definition of neighbor. Which raises a question. How do we love that person? When Jesus says, go and do likewise, what exactly is he telling us to do? I mean, if we're not actually in the situation of having to rescue someone who just got beat up by robbers, if we're not in that exact situation, what do we do? Well, this is one of the reasons that I like the story of the Good Samaritan. I actually think it's very instructive. It's got some some good tips. Even as a pagan, non-Jewish half-breed, the Samaritan has a lot to teach us about neighbor love. What do we have to learn about loving our neighbor from the Samaritan? A few things that I want to share with you before we conclude with communion. We learn, for example, don't pass people by. 
as Jesus describes in the story, when, when the, the, the priest and, and the Levite uh, see the guy, what do they do? Not a rhetorical question. What do they do? What do they do? We just, I just talked about the story like three times. What do they do? Not only do they pass by, what do they do? They cross to the other side of the street. They, they pass by on the other side of the street. They, they avoid the guy entirely, right? We do that. We've all done that. I mean, we've all crossed by the other side of the street to avoid having to look a homeless guy in the eyes. Now, we've all avoided people who might need our help. Now, we have, you know, wait until our neighbor leaves his house until we go out inside and get in our car. We see people at church that, you know, we can't remember their names, so we're just going to avoid them for the morning. <laughs> Stay on this side of the lobby. Uh, to love our neighbors is to notice them, to pay attention to them, to engage them. Even if you can't shake their hands and have to maintain a six-foot barrier, you can still engage your neighbor. There's lots of things that make this difficult, though. These days, you know, fear, of contamination, all that stuff. But one of the things that makes it difficult to not uh, pass people by is busyness. A lot of us are just too busy to notice people in need. In fact, years ago, some researchers tried to recreate the scene of the Good Samaritan to see how it would play out in like an actual social setting. Uh, the researchers assigned a group of Christian seminary students. They told them to prepare a lesson on the story of the Good Samaritan. And then they told them to head over, after preparing their lesson, head over to another building to deliver the lesson to a group of students that had been assembled. But they told them, uh, they gave them this assignment with different levels of urgency. So some were told, you know, you have to get there quickly, they're waiting for you. Some were told, you've got to get there soon, but, you know, you've, you've got some time. And some were told, there's no rush at all, uh, they're, you know, just whenever you get there is fine. Now along their way, the researchers placed an actor... Uh, playing the role of a sick homeless guy who was told to cough and moan as the seminary students walked by. According to the researchers, only 40% of the seminary students heading to talk about the importance of being a good Samaritan stopped by to help the homeless guy. 60% of them walked by, some even stepping over the man to get to where they needed to go. But urgency mattered here. In low-hurry situations, for example, 63% stopped to help. In medium-hurry situations, 45% people stopped to help. In high-hurry situations, 10% of the people stopped to help. One of the best things we can do to serve our neighbor is just to slow the heck down. Sometimes it's only by slowing down that we even notice the people in our lives who need help. How else can we love our neighbor? <clears throat> Not passing people by, by having compassion. As Jesus is describing the Samaritan, he says when he saw him, he had pity on him. To have pity on someone is to, um, is to empathize with them. It's to, it's to feel with them. It's to suffer with them. Uh, the opposite of this, the opposite of to have pity on, is to judge. It's to blame. For many of us, this is our tendency. We blame victims. We blame poor people for not working harder, as if it's just, you know, that easy. We blame victims of rape for drinking too much or wearing the wrong clothes, as if that justifies anything. We blame alcoholics and addicts for not having more self-control. We blame people for overreacting to COVID-19. We call them stupid and ridiculous. That's not helpful 
And it's not Christian. To love our neighbors is to feel for them, to try to understand why they are who they are. I mean, take that person that you love the least. That person might be a truly despicable human being. I don't doubt it. They might be just a real Samaritan. But here's the thing. There's a reason they are who they are. Maybe they were born into poverty. Maybe they they have seen a side of life that you haven't. Maybe they were neglected by terrible parents who themselves were neglected by terrible parents who themselves were neglected by terrible parents. When I was in seminary, for example, I spent some time in downtown Minneapolis at a homeless shelter. And uh, the afternoon that I got to spend there, I got to know one of the residents. And he blew apart the categories in my mind. He was just a guy working a job. They had to downsize, lost his job, hadn't been there long enough to establish any roots, lost his apartment, didn't have family or friends to stay with, just ended up on the streets. That's it. Now, did he make some mistakes along the way? Of course. But his margin for being able to make a mistake and recover was much smaller than what privileged people, like many of us, have. We can make a mistake and we can kind of roll on. He couldn't, just ended up on the streets. To have pity on people is to appreciate that, to recognize that. Our neighbors need our understanding and compassion, not our judgment, especially these days. Especially these days. I mean, is our world going crazy from COVID-19? Yes. But how are we going to react? Through judgment or compassion? How do we love our neighbors? By not passing them by, by having some compassion, and lastly, by paying the extra expense. Jesus emphasizes the Samaritan's overwhelming generosity here. I mean, he bandages the man's wounds. He puts him on his own donkey. He pays for his stay at the hospital. I mean, Jesus is emphasizing just the the largeness of his response. And if that's not enough, I mean, he tells the innkeeper, hey, I'm going to reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Whatever it costs you, just let me know, and I'll pay it. He pays the extra expense. That's what loving your neighbor looks like. It's not doing the bare minimum. It's surprising them with our extra generosity. I mean, true neighborliness is always asking this question. What else can I do for you? Not what can I do for you. What else can I do for you? How can I overwhelm you with the love of God? My dad does this. My father. He's always serving me in this way. Thankfully, it's not a Samaritan-type relationship. At least I don't think he he seems to like me. I don't think I'm a... uh, pagan half-breed in his eyes. But he's always paying the extra expense for me. He comes over to the house to fix stuff, knows that we don't have a lot of time to fix stuff, says, hey, what can, I, what can I fix? Give him something to fix. He fixes it, says, all right, what else can I fix? Give him something to fix. All right, what else can I fix? Eventually he says, just leave me a list. Just leave me a list. Make it a long one. That's what it means to love your neighbor. It means to do more than the minimum. Pay the extra expense. Go above and beyond. For the record, This is how Jesus loves us, right? Pays the extra expense. Didn't do the minimum. Doesn't give us a band-aid. Keep walking. No, he binds our wounds. Carries us all the way to the heaven. Also, Jesus has compassion on us. He doesn't judge us as sinners. Didn't come to judge. Came to heal. He doesn't pass us by. He could have. 
He could have walked on the other side of the road. He could have chosen not to come to earth to cast a blind eye. But God sees the plight of his children. He sees us in our beat-up condition, robbed by death, robbed by sin. So he came to earth as a man. He came to earth to die for our sins, destroy death so that we can live forever. In fact, the actions of Jesus look so similar to the actions of the Good Samaritan. The actions of Jesus in dying for our sins look so similar to the actions of the Good Samaritan in the story that a lot of Bible scholars wonder if Jesus is actually describing whom? Himself. A lot of scholars wonder if this is actually a story about Jesus. Is Jesus describing himself as the Good Samaritan? Now, for various scholarly reasons, I don't actually think so, but the parallels are there. And before we take communion this morning, it's worth adding to my main point here. Like I said, I think Jesus' point in the parable is that to love your neighbors, to love the person you love the least. But I'm going to add to that, though. To love your neighbor is to love the person you love the least in the way that Jesus loves you. That's the point. To love your neighbor is to love the person you love the least in the way that Jesus loves you. That means to not pass people by, to have compassion, to pay the extra expense. That's how Jesus loves us. That's how we love our neighbors, all of them, even those we love the least. This is what we remember when we celebrate communion. Communion is something followers of Jesus have been doing for 2,000 years. It's a symbolic reenactment of the love of God for us. When we eat from the bread and drink from the cup, we're reminded of the extent of God's love, that he would come to earth, not pass us by, come to earth. Pay the extra expense for our souls. Give up his life so that we could be forgiven of our sins. We're reminded not only that that's how much God loves us, but that's how we should love one another. Communion reminds us of that too. So as you take communion this morning, do so with the face of your Samaritan in mind. Who is the person you love the least? Can you really call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ if you're not going to at least try to love that person your enemy, in the same way that God loves you.